You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. This is Sugi from the Knights of Ren, and you're listening to I Rebel, a Star Wars Destiny podcast. Forgery of Imperial documents, possession of stolen property, aggravated assault, resisting arrest. On your own from the age of 15, reckless, aggressive, and undisciplined. I rebel. Welcome everyone to I Rebel. I am your host, Jedi Geek Girl. Joining me for this very special episode, the man that does it all from podcasting to editing to Facebook modeling to dealing with everybody in the community, the one, the only, Sugi. Well, thank you so very much. Hi, everybody. It's great to be here. It is so nice to have you on. I know that most people associate you with Knights of Ren. However, I know that you do other things outside of Knights of Ren. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do besides your association with everything Knights of Ren? Sure. So if you don't know who I am, my name is John Sugiyama, but everybody goes by Sugi because there's just too many Johns in the world. And if you ask for a John, like four guys are going to be like, hi, that's me. You have to point and click like which one of us you're talking to. So Sugi's just so much easier. My primary job in the Destiny community is working with Knights of Ren. We do podcasting. We go to events. We do news. We play games. We're pretty much everywhere. Outside of that, I'm always available to help people. You know, when we're not podcasting, not editing, I'm answering PMs, I'm on Discord, I'm playing games in my local store. Sometimes there's other podcasters I'll work with and give advice or help do technical detail with. There's a lot of things behind the scenes that we're working on to help strengthen the Destiny community, and I'm really excited to start unveiling those as we wrap up the year and get into 2018. We're starting a new show, Countdown to Worlds, so we've done just exclusively the hyper-competitive high-end event coverage with players. We're going to be working with Mike from Hyperloops and Taxter and just doing this, you know, really quick five-minute-per-segment show so you can get a lot of content in a very short amount of time. When I'm not doing Destiny, which is not particularly often, I'm very much a gamer. So I play Magic, I play Yu-Gi-Oh, I play Pokemon, I paint miniatures, so I play Warhammer 40k. I also do a lot of video gaming, so I've got an Overwatch team I sub in and out of every once in a while. My brother and I used to do League of Legends every once in a while, we'll jump in on that. I'm having a lot of fun with Dead Space that was on sale for Black Friday. Dead Space 1 and 2 were like $5, so was Sims 4. There's just a lot of things to do on top of that. You know, I'm married, so I spend time with my wife going on dates, getting ready for Christmas, watching movies you know, with all the new Star Wars and Marvel stuff coming out. I am extremely busy, and I don't think sleep is going to be one of the things I do for the next many years of my life, but that's okay because it's all totally worth it. Like being a gamer, being a nerd, and being a Star Wars geek is just really fun. It's an amazing part of life. And yeah, I really wouldn't trade it for the world. It's really nice to meet so many people in this community, both high-end, casual, new, old, you know, Magic Buddies, Yu-Gi-Oh! Buddies, Pokemon, like all these players from all sorts of realms coming together, and it all is related to Destiny, and I think that's just super neat. I really do not know how you do it all, because I do a lot myself, but compared to you, I am just skating on ice. It's absolutely amazing. It's not really difficult, Doing the things that we do is just time consuming. And that's something anyone who listens to this, I definitely want to inspire you to understand that being a content creator is not hard. 
Creating content is not difficult. Editing is not difficult. None of these things are mechanically complicated. It just requires you to take time with your craft. So if you've ever listened to any podcast, not just mine or Jedi Geek Girls, like if you listen to the news, if you listen to radio, even a YouTube channel, and you think, man, I really want to do that. And, you know, this isn't Destiny related. It's just anything regarding content creation. Like anybody can do it. It just takes time. And the first time you take a crack at it, it might not be something you're proud of or you like, but that's the whole point. Like you just have to keep doing it over and over and over until you get to a point that you feel comfortable with releasing it. If you like it, someone else is definitely going to like it. It's not something that is restricted to people who are naturally good looking or have really good voices or who have been doing this in the industry for years. Like literally anybody can do it and have a lot of fun and create extremely high quality content. It's just about practicing your craft. I agree with you 100%. I actually touched upon this in my last episode about content creation and just doing it. I highly recommend if you, the listener, want to create content, go do it. You don't have to release it. You don't have to worry about it meeting a certain standard. Just do what you enjoy. Do what you love. And if what you enjoy and what you love fits the community, then that is just a beautiful harmony between content and community. There's not much new under the sun. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. If you want to create content and you're not exactly sure what to do or how to do it, there's nothing wrong with duplicating or copying something you enjoy, something you listen to, because that's a great place to start. It's kind of like when you net deck with Star Wars Destiny. You can do whatever you want. You can play the game however you want. And a lot of people think, oh, if I net deck, I'll just automatically win. And that's not totally true because it's half the battle. Like half the battle is having the deck ready to go. But the other half is knowing what the deck is, what the deck does, and how to pilot it. That really applies to when you're creating content, like copying, say, you know, you watch Sports Center and you really love Sports Center and you want to duplicate that in an audio environment. That's fine. You can totally do that. You can copy, you know, and paste word for word, segment for segment, all of that. But the reason why they're successful is there's chemistry, they know their industry, they know their information. And so you're going to have to translate some of that into your creation. But once you do, you've already got half of the battle done. You've got the entire show built and conceived, and you don't have to recreate something from scratch. The same thing kind of goes with Destiny. If you're like, why is it I bought these cards, I built this deck, and I can't seem to get a win? Well, do you have the reps under your belt? Have you played that deck hundreds of times like the people who are winning packs, regionals, and galactic qualifiers are? That's just something to take into consideration. I have to say that this episode, one of the topics we are going to be talking about is a year of Destiny. It's been a year since Destiny has been released. But before we get into that, in relation, it has been absolutely amazing how the content creation scene has exploded. Now, keep in mind, I haven't played X-Wing, Magic the Gathering, and when I was in Yu-Gi-Oh!, there wasn't a lot outside of content creation, so I'm unfamiliar with other games and their content creation community. But for me, the diversity in content and the choices that there are is absolutely amazing. Not only do we have so much, but there is room for so much more. Don't be worried about there being too much content or too many podcasts. Just do it if you want to do it and enjoy what you like because there's nothing wrong with having options. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of space to be explored in the Star Wars Destiny content arena. I mean, there's so many different archetypes. There's so many different markets. There's so many different people listening that aren't really being approached by any one show in particular. You know, that's why we're working to create and help 
new people who've come to us asking, hey, we want to make content, but we don't know what on earth we're supposed to do. So I'm sitting down with quite a few people and showing them how I do it, how Knights of Ren sets up their editing suite, how we import, export, do our cuts, all that stuff, and giving them the tools to empower them to make their own show. And I think that's going to be good just because Knights of Ren may have been one of the first, if not the first podcast to start covering Star Wars Destiny. We don't want to be the last and we don't want to be the only. That's just bad for the community. There shouldn't be just one group or one person controlling any environment. It's just really not a good thing. Like, for example, I like control decks. I'm a control player forever. But there's a lot of people who like aggro decks. There's a lot of people who like mid-range. There's a lot of people who like setup and combo. And I'm, I'm not interested in that. But if I was the only person doing content and I was the only voice, then those people would probably not want to listen to the content. They might not enjoy Destiny because there's just one voice controlling the entire environment. It is good that there's a wide swatch of options, players, skill levels, and enjoyment of the game so that anybody can listen to something. Anybody can find something they want to listen to and enjoy it. There's more coming, and that's really exciting. Not only that, but it is important to keep in mind, going with the Destiny analogy, is you also don't want to have every deck be a control deck. Otherwise, it is boring and there isn't a lot of diversity. You want aggro, you want control, you want mid-range, you want mill, etc., etc., etc. Otherwise, it's boring. So having a good diversity selection of content is also important in a community. I mean, I don't mind all control decks. That's fun for me just because you see a lot of player skill in manipulating the deck since a control deck isn't linear by any means. So the people who win have definitely earned that win. It's not just play card, tap guy, roll dice. Like you have to really, really earn a win in a control versus control deck. So it is different and unique to the environment of, say, heavy aggro because heavy aggro is just overwhelm your opponent with lots of dice, lots of damage. You can't mitigate enough of it over a short period of time to the point where you die. It's not as skill intensive in terms of when you make a decision, if you make the wrong decision, you could lose the game. You can come back from an aggro mistake without significant punishment as opposed to a control deck where one misplay could cost you the game. If you ever played Conquest, the old LCG from FFG, the Dark Elves were heavy risk, heavy reward. If you played right, you could win very consistently. But if you misplayed, you could lose the game because you didn't do the right sequencing, you didn't get rid of the right target, and you just left yourself wide open to a flank. That worked perfectly into transitioning into Destiny. Regionals just happened, and R2P2, Ray2, Po2 from the two-player starter seems to be that deck that is very forgiving. I am unfamiliar with the deck is this the case with the deck, or do you just think that people are jumping to conclusions about that specific fact? It's tricky because the deck offers a lot of things to do. It is very powerful. It is very potent. It's really dependent on the skill of the pilot. And this is probably more so than other decks because you would look at the list and think, okay, you know, you put your lightsabers on Ray, you put your guns on Poe, and that's it. But the most important thing about that deck is understanding the sequencing of cards and how the dice interact with each other. If you don't really understand how those things work, you will do well with the deck, but you will not win consistently and you will not top because the people who are winning understand exactly what is being presented to them when the dice are rolled out and they really, really know their matchups. So they understand how to divert 
aggro from Poe to Ray or Ray to Poe. They know how to load up one character so they're threatening while sequentially giving their second character more and more stuff. They're trying to essentially divert you from making a good decision or creating an environment where both characters are major threats and you can't kill both, so you have to pick one, and then they load up the other one you're not attacking, and that's just tough. There's healing, there's mitigation, there's recursion. Like, the deck does a lot of things. It's not, like, super forgiving. Like, if you consistently make mistakes over and over and over, you're going to lose the game. If you make one or two... You might be able to come back, but obviously high-end players are going to capitalize on anything you give them. So if you make a mistake and they catch on it and they capitalize on the mistake you've made, it's going to be a much harder hole to dig yourself out of. It's a great deck because it offers a lot of different playstyles to the community. It's not just aggro. It's not just mid-range. It's not just control. It can be whatever you want in the time you need it to be. And I think that's why a lot of high-end players are flocking to it is because it is a very flexible deck that can do not limitless potential, but very, very, very high options and very high-end output of damage, removal, and answers to any sort of situation you might come across. It sounds like what you were saying, correct me if I'm wrong, that it is actually quite the opposite. It is the deck that requires a good understanding of the game and the deck to actually play. You just cannot play it like a Pomaz. Anybody can play the deck. It's just to get the most out of the deck, you have to understand the intricacies of the game. So you could easily give this to a brand new player. Never play the game before. You teach them with this. They can go to a tournament and they can do well. The deck does provide a lot of consistency, and the numbers on the dice are very high. But if that person wants to go 6-0 and a Galactic Qualifier, if they want to win the regional, it's going to take a lot more than just learning the game and learning the deck. You have to learn how to sequence your dice when you have the post-special. Where do you put the shield? Where do you flip your dice? Like, do you flip your dice? Do you flip your opponent's dice? Do you have cards in hand that allow you to flip more things so you you can sequence multitudes of advantage for you, disadvantage for your opponent? It's a very playable deck on any level, but if you want to get the most bang for your buck, a skilled player can push this deck to its limits better than a new player could. I have to say that it is one of those decks that I find really appealing and I really appreciate you enlightening me on the deck because I haven't had time to play it, play against it, or really study the deck. I'm more of a Qui-Gon Kanan player because, let's face it, I'm a Minnesotan and that's kind of a thing. (laughs) But outside of R2P2, what are some of your other thoughts about the second weekend of regional so far? Well, the good news is the meta is still very wide open. And of course, people would argue with me and say, well, there's only four decks or five decks or it's R2P2. And that's still better than one deck meta where it was Rainbow Nines or it was Pomaz or it was Kylo 2 FN. Like those metas were just super boring because if you wanted to win, you had to run that specific deck or some kind of very weird counter to the deck that would probably have bad matchups against everything else in the field. So those decks weren't the de facto god tier OP, no one else can win deck. There were pilots who were doing well with 
non-meta decks, but it was infinitely harder to do such a thing. When you add a good player with a good deck, it's even doubly difficult to try and overcome that with some kind of off-meta deck. So when you look at the current regional state, we are basically in an Empire or meta. We're waiting for legacies to come out. We have a lot of options. In fact, we just uploaded an article on Artificery from Tim Meads, who was talking about how things are really changing. And I think this is interesting that once Legacies comes out, we finally have a multi-formatted game. Now, the thing we're specifically discussing here is Trilogies, which focuses on the most recent set. Once that becomes legal, we have Standard, Trilogy, and Infinite. Infinite basically doesn't do anything for the next like year and a half until we actually have a set cycle out. So we'll have Standard, we'll have Trilogy. 99% of the games we'll play will be Standard-based. But Trilogy is going to be interesting because being the most recent set would mean that if you go to a shop, or you go to like a Galactic Qualifier, and FFG has said that Galactic Qualifiers will run at least one trilogy event. So that means you're looking at the two-player set, the Legacy set, the Legacy starters, and rivals. Basically anything in that white packaging. That is the trilogy legal set. So you've got this interesting dichotomy or dynamic of something similar to Magic, where Standard is the two most recent sets, and then if you go into Trilogy, it's the most recent set. So you could have a card in Legacies that's not great in Standard, but because of the block being, you know, Awakenings, Empire at War, Spirit of Rebellion, Legacies, so on and so forth, because there's so many more cards and available options, for example, say it's Yoda. Yoda's good, but we're going to use him for an example since everybody knows who Yoda is. So Yoda comes out in Legacies whenever it comes out, January, February, March, December. We don't know. Yoda's legal. You can play him in a tournament. We discover Yoda's decent. Not great, but he's decent. But then you go to a trilogy-only meta. Trilogy-only cards, trilogy-only decks, trilogy-only whatever. Now, Yoda might actually increase in value because there's no more FN. There's no more... Z6 Rypaton, there's no more Electroshock, there's no more this, that, or the other, because those cards weren't reprinted. So now, Yoda could go up in value. Yoda could become more playable. Yoda could actually become top tier in a completely different environment just because of the lack of cards in that specific block. What's interesting about Destiny is that right now, the meta is one thing. It's it's all three. It's infinite, it's standard, it's trilogy, because they're all basically the same thing until we get legacies released. We have R2P2, we have Qui-Gon Kanan, you've got Sabine, Ezra, you've got Sad Boys, which would be your Kylo 2 and Baby Vader, you've got Rainbow Fives, and then on top of those five decks, you've got other things that are very potent, like Jabba's Sister Sister, there's people who are running Big Vader with the Magna Guard. Palpatine is still out there hurting people. You've got Guardian decks. Shout out to Nick Obi, you know, aka Taxter, the guy who's just like Phasma and friends. You've got people running Django with shenanigans. There's a lot of things that are out there. It's super cool to see so many more options than the previous iteration of Destiny, where it was like one deck and maybe a couple counters. And that was it, because everyone just flocked to that one specific deck because it just it just won and it won much easier than any other deck. And, you know, why not? Why would you not take a deck that's more potent in killing faster than any other deck? It's just so much easier. 
It is absolutely amazing where the game is right now. It has been a year since the game has been released. We have a lot of new people who are coming to the game who are unfamiliar a little bit with the history of Destiny. And I would like to talk about that for a little bit in this episode. Going back a year ago, how did you get your first Destiny product last year? I got my stuff from Cool Stuff Inc. I live in Orlando and I was like, I'm five minutes away from a cool stuff. Like it's literally a block away. I can walk if I wanted to. So I, what did I do? I think I took the day off work and I got in line really early and met some of my good friends, Mark Vialva, who's technical on the Discord. And we just stood out front and waited. And they opened the doors. We bought a bunch of packs. They didn't. (laughs) Unfortunately, they had no allocations. So on Facebook, a lot of people had been saying stores were allocating players to like six packs, 12 packs. You couldn't actually buy a whole box. And people were kind of upset. But everyone had a fair chance to get product. Cool stuff was like, yeah, you can just buy whatever you want. And of course, if you hear this, you're like, oh my gosh, like what the heck? So the first eight of us were legitimately going to buy them out. There was like 30 people in line and we all were like, you know what? It's probably better for the community if we split it up amongst ourselves because we had enough money to buy like three, four boxes per person. And so we said, all right, we're just going to buy one box, like hard cap it for ourselves so that other people can actually buy product and, you know, allow people to play because we also knew we were going to be going to a majority of the cool stuffs in the, in the area. There's three or four within like an hour radius of where we live. And we kind of knew each other before we met at Cool Stuff for the Destiny launch. So we were like, instead of just eating up all the product at all the stores, let's just eat a little bit and then hope that there's a reprint and we won't worry about it. So we bought our first box. We bought both copies of both starter decks. And then we cracked our boxes and started playing. We had a great time. The next day, we did the same thing at the next cool stuff. It was a weekend. So like Friday was the first one. So I took that day off. Saturday was the next one. Sunday was the next one. I got four starter decks, three booster boxes, and I pulled pretty much everything I wanted and traded the rest to the guys who were there because we essentially had access to a complete set between three people. Uh, we didn't have any problem getting product. I mean, we did get there at like seven in the morning when the cool stuff opened at like noon. So the first day we just sat and waited and didn't do anything. And then Saturday and Sunday, we were actually playing in line and people were like, oh my gosh, is this destiny? And we're like, yeah, it totally is. And so they would watch us play and we would have them sit down and like pilot our very poorly built decks from like one booster box. And they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. And we're like, yeah, you should be. It's a great game. And, you know, we were just building hype. And of course, there was a problem with product shortage because even though we limited ourselves to buying not as much product as we wanted, there were still a lot of people who wanted to buy stuff. And I think on Friday, they only had like eight or 10 boxes of Destiny. And so obviously the first four of us bought four boxes. And when you have 30 people, that doesn't go very far. And so there were people at the very end of the line who didn't get anything because it sold out on Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Like there were lines of people and probably the first half were guaranteed something. And then once you got past like that 20th, 25th person product was like scarce. You might not have anything. You might have like a few packs you didn't know. And so it was a weird kind of thing where it was super successful. They sold everything out. People were hanging out, playing games, talking, trading, having a ton of fun. And then, of course, there were people who were like, well, whatever. I'm upset. I can't get the product, but I'll just get it you know, next week when the new shipment comes in. And then we had the horrible realization that that was it. 
Like there was no more destiny to be had. And what was bad was all the stores in Orlando didn't know that either. And so they sold everything. They didn't actually keep any product for price support because literally every store is under the impression that here's a wave, sell it out, get another wave next week, sell it out, you know, keep some for price support in between each week. You know, they, they thought it was magic. And with magic, you can just buy whatever you want whenever you want. And if you run out of product, sure, you put a new order in and it comes in the next week. Boom. You've got another 50 boxes of magic. You've got another 50 boxes of destiny, you know, set aside like five boxes for price support, sell the 45, keep doing it, rinse, wash, repeat. And so, you know, they bought a small allocation up front to see if the market was interested, which it was. They sold out and they go, sure, we'll just buy more. You know, if they bought eight boxes week one, they'd buy like 20 boxes week two. See how that goes. And so the people who were really into the game, who were the hardcore super fans, had product. And the people who wanted to play, who weren't the hardcore necessarily super fans, who were kind of looking inside from outside, kind of got left out. And it was a really bitter taste for them because it just was like, I want to play this game and I want to experience it, but I'm not allowed to because there is no more product. And some people left and said, I can play other things. I don't really care for Destiny. I don't need it. And others were patient and bought boxes online or bought boxes from other countries. You know, we would help try and supplement their cards with ours and, you know, get these people to play the game, even though they didn't have nearly as much of a collection as we did. And it was just really... It's really tough because it's hard to sell a game that you can't physically buy. Like when someone comes into a store and they see 10 people playing Destiny and they sit down and go, what's this? You show them, you teach them, they have a great time and they go, great, where can I buy a starter deck? And you tell them, oh, you can't. And then their face is like, what? Yeah, there's no product and you can't buy anything. You're going to have to borrow our stuff. Then it's a really tough sell because... Okay, well, I had fun. I'll go do other things. I'll play board games. I'll play Magic, Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, and I'm not going to worry about it. So the first few months were very difficult for Destiny because it was a great game. It had a lot going for it with no product to give to anybody. So it was it was tough. It was very difficult. I know that I was very lucky living up here in Minnesota because we have such a wide variety of stores able to have pre-releases and a good selection of product held back for price support just because FFG is in our backyard and FFG was able to put stuff aside. But outside of that, I was lucky because I put my pre-order in a few months before the realization came in that the product was going to be released in waves and the waves were not going to be as big as what people were expecting. What I remember most about that period of time is whenever a new wave came, I believe there was four or five from Awakenings, they sold out within one or two days. If you did not pre-order or you did not go there, you were not able to get any. It was a very fascinating situation, very frustrating situation. That is something that a lot of the people who are coming to the game right now may not know about the game is that it had a rocky start and we are lucky to be where we are right now where that is not a problem. If I want to go get a Beard of Rebellion box or Awakening box, I can go do that. I can go pick up 10 of them if I want to. And though we have had a rocky start towards the beginning of the game, I'm glad that we got past that. But do you think that the rocky start of the game has hindered the game? Or do you think the game will get past that rocky start if it hasn't already? Oh, it absolutely hindered the game. There's no question about that. We could have a lot more players if that hadn't have happened. 
yeah, there's there's no way to sugarcoat it or try and spin it and say, oh, hey, you know, we've overcome this deficit of product and the game is great and nothing bad happened. Yeah, bad things happened. I, I know a lot of players out here who spent their money on other things and they look at Destiny and go, yeah, I would have bought it if it was available, but I didn't and I'm not going to. And that's just that. So the game has 100% lost potential players because there was no product availability and there's there's no question about it. It's a good thing that the game is still growing and it's doing as well as it is, but it wasn't good at all at any like at any point in time having a product shortage of that level is not good. It's not really acceptable because you're creating this environment of hype where you have a Star Wars game, you have a trading card game, you have dice, it's new, it's innovative, it's unique. And people are excited and people are intrigued and people are also blocked out from all of those things. It leaves a bad taste in your mouth. I play the game and I'm still just not really happy that that happened because we could be so much larger. And of course, there's no way to go back. There's no use crying over spilled milk. But it is upsetting that we could have been much larger if that had never happened and we had started out smooth with plenty of product plenty of everything to go around our communities would probably be significantly larger it could be i would think a much different community if we hadn't have had that problem because there were just so many people complaining so many people upset and so many people who just felt like they were stabbed in the back by ffg because they had invested in the game they had bought one box they found what they wanted and they were having fun and then they go you know i need some more cards Nobody has any cards. And the people who do are charging astronomical prices for a Darth Vader was going for like $80. You were just forced to pay these horrible prices because there was no choice. You couldn't go to your local store. You couldn't go buy singles. There weren't stores with singles at the prices we have now. You were forced to either pay these high prices or play a suboptimal deck or you'd have to buy a box from overseas, or you'd have to show up at your game store like the moment they open and pray to the maker that they had something come in and someone didn't buy it out from under you. There's just so many things that made it very difficult for people to get into the game early, early, early on. Would you say that the game is on the uptick now, getting past that? I mean, obviously, as you explained it had a rocky start and it has hindered the game. Do you think that we are moving forward now up the hill? And if we are, what was that turning point? That's a tough question. Of course, I want to say, yes, we're moving up. Everything's going better. Like, I do think there are good things that have happened. The The biggest uptick, the biggest positive is the rules reference update where, you know, we saw points changed for characters. We saw Vibroknife get a nerf, FN get a nerf, Poe, Maz, you know, all these decks that were... I'm not specifically saying these cards were nerfed. I'm saying like Unkar was hit. So Thronkar isn't a thing. FN and Buddies isn't a thing. Poe Maz isn't a thing. Vibroknife isn't so dominant. And that really helped the game because it's given us the opportunity to play new stuff. Heroes are finally viable. Like that was obnoxious where for the longest time, like it was no hero decks ever anywhere. Like when Awakenings came out, you saw things like Vader Raider. You saw things like Han Rey. But for the most part, it was probably like a 60-40 villain, villain meta. You could say it was 50-50. But as soon as we got to Spirit of Rebellion, it was very heavy villain. Super heavy villain. 
there are these huge swings. So Awakenings meta was like 60-40, 50-50, whatever you want to call it. Then we get Spirit of Rebellion and it's like villains are really popular now. And then Pomaz becomes really popular. And then Rainbow Nines comes out and it's only villain. Like Pomaz just died. And then after that, Empire at War comes out and it's Kylo FN. You're just like... What is going on? I mean, the Kylo FN meta came out when the two-player box was released for Force Friday. But up until that point, it had been Fun Car, Rainbow Nines, just villains, 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 and then more villains. And so FFG finally released a rules reference guide that changed everything. And now there's a lot of heroes. I would say it's probably 70-30 in the opposite direction, so 70% heroes, 30% villains. But there's still villain decks that are very competitive. There's a lot of hero decks that are competitive, and we have the widest range of options we've ever had before in the history of Destiny. But to go back to what you were asking, is the game moving forward? I think the game is moving. There is forward momentum. And there are good things happening, but I also think FFG really needs to get their business together. Like, we haven't seen an official release date for Legacies. I don't recall ever seeing an official announcement for the release of Empire at War. It just kind of got spoiled by Team Covenant when they had their release date. And they're like, oh, hey, uh, Empire at War is going to be in our store at this date. And the community was like, oh, uh, the release date for Empire at War is such and such. Well, FFG didn't have an article breaking that news. It was something else. We got a weird grouping of spoilers for Legacies and then like nothing. It's just been kind of spotty on how the game is being handled by its own parent company. And I find that extremely bizarre just because I don't know if a third party is the best way to break news. And I know Team Covenant works with FFG and, you know, they're buddies and that's all good and such. But personally, I want to see the company breaking the news for their own game. It'd be weird for Magic if like the next set that came out was announced by Channel Fireball or Star City Games, like a third party company that is obviously huge and impactful into the community. But that announcement wasn't officially released by a official news medium. It was like a third hand source. Whether it's correct or not, it would just be very bizarre. So we're just kind of like, hey, what's going on? I think if FFG tightens the reins and actually pushes the game through their official channels, that would be helpful because it is confusing to the community to see this game that's amazing kind of exist nebulously i don't know if that's the right word to say but the thought process i'm trying to get across is like we're getting news about ffg information from not ffg if that makes sense so yes the game is growing and yes more people are coming and yes this is a very healthy meta but none of that matters if ffg just doesn't do anything with the game and like all of a sudden you walk into your game store Monday and boom, there's legacy. It's like, wait, what? How? When did this happen? Like, I thought this was coming in January. Oh, no, it's here now. Well, nobody announced it. Yeah, well, it's here now. Or like Rivals shows up at your next local event. Like, wait, I didn't know this was here. Yeah, we didn't know either. It just showed up in our shipment that we pre-ordered. Um, okay, so cool. Because like if you have official announcements, you have official information, like you can hype it, you can prep it, your local store can set up events, you know, early and say, hey, you know, Rivals releases January 500. The 500th day of January, we're getting Rivals and we're going to do an event. You can pre-purchase it now. We're going to do all these things. We're going to have pizza, you know, RSVP. You can like hype up the event. You can hype up the product. You can hype up the community. You can do all these things. But if it just shows up randomly or say, for example, Team Covenant says uh, Legacies is coming out January 32nd. Oh, okay. So then we all kind of are like, 
contacting our local stores. Hey, Team Covenant said January 32nd. When's it coming in for you guys? Uh, let me talk to my distributor. I'll get back to you. And then, oh, yeah, we're getting it, you know, February 3rd or whatever. Like, you know, nobody knows and it causes a commotion. It's just kind of bizarre as opposed to FFG going, hey, the official announcement for this board game release, this card game release, this TCG release is such and such. Contact your local store now to set up an event, blah, blah, blah. And you're good to go. The game is moving forward, definitely forward for the community aspect. Like the community is creating fantastic approachability to this game but i think ffg needs to also kind of pick it up a little bit more and push out more information more information more spoilers more hype because it is a trading card game i know they're a board game company but trading card games and trading card game players want constant flow of information like ideas deck techs card analyses spoilers you know like with legend of the five rings they have these backstories for characters things that are relevant and pertinent to the game that people can just kind of eat up like that needs to be consistent in a trading card game environment because there's so much happening it's a fast-paced style of gaming things are changing every few months there's a new meta there's new cards there's new strategies there's new everything and that needs to be something that is consistently cycling through both the content creator side and the ffg side so we can all basically work together to push this amazing game out to the players i have a really hard question to ask but before i do i want to say that i love destiny i love the community i love the content creation community i love everything about destiny and i don't want to see it go anywhere but the question has to be asked and I have heard this from other members of the community. Is FFG at risk of losing the Star Wars license from Disney due to their handling to this game? Because they are pushing it through other mediums. Star Wars Insider just released two promos of the game in its latest issue. All the Marvel comics for about a year had the game advertising on back. It seems like Disney is taking this franchise seriously as a game avenue. So coming back around, do you think that FFG is at risk of losing the license to Star Wars? I have no earthly idea. <laughs> that That is actually not a difficult question for me because I don't know. I don't know what the agreements of their contract were. I don't know what was decided behind closed doors. I have absolutely no idea. I would say as long as the product is making money, I'm not entirely sure Disney is going to be hyper picky about it. It's so difficult because Disney is such a large company and they have their feet in so many different pools and they have so many different pieces of media, art, comics, video games, board games, trading card games, so on and so forth. Like there's you know, Star Wars underwear, Star Wars socks, like there's Star Wars everything. So I don't know who is in charge of babysitting ffg who's in charge of babysitting their licensing rights and agreements to say is destiny performing as we want yes no do we want to keep working with ffg yes no do we pull the license out from under them yes no no clue not any idea that's not something i would worry about to be very honest that's not the question i'm asking myself when it comes to destiny that is a fair answer i know that i don't want to see the game going anywhere but i know that we are always looking to news and we like information, just basic information. And, and it seems like we have been lacking it during the past year. But moving on to a little bit more positive thing. Since the game came out, we have had, quote unquote, roughly three different formats. 
what has been your one favorite deck from each of the three quote unquote formats? Oh, it's always been Jabba or Unkar. Like, I'm not even going to lie about that. Jabba or Unkar or both Jabba and Unkar are by far my favorite characters. I love winning games with a non-traditional sense of play. I like taking, and this is not just Destiny, this is like Magic, Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, board games. I like trying to break games. I actually do some board game development and consulting, and that is literally my job. Like, someone hands me a game, and I play it and try and find any and every loophole, every gap, every phrasing and wording that is incorrect so that a player could take horrible advantage of the game structure and mechanics and just blow the doors wide open. So I like doing that inside of any trading card game that allows me to do that. And more focused on non-traditional means. So you could say things like FN would be perfect for me because it breaks the game. You can just roll so many dice and do so many things. And, you know, you boundless ambition and you just overwrite, 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 and overwrite. And yeah, that's broken in a sense. It's unfair in a sense compared to someone like... I don't know. You could say Jabba. Like, Jabba has to roll his dice and resolve them the old-fashioned way. FN, you just stick cards on him, and he just gets value for days. So I like winning by doing really bizarre things. And that's not jank. That's that's a different kind of deck. You could classify it as jank, but it's not like true jank, if you look at the term for jank. So I want to ignore damage. I think that Mill is a very, very, very tricky archetype. And when you win, you win. Like, you definitely have earned that win because you didn't do anything to those characters. You had to work your way through their dice, their cards, and all of their options, be it mitigation, sustain, burst. You really had to work the gambit as opposed to with damage. You just have to deal damage. And I know that's that's simplifying it to a very short sentence, but... I mean, that's how I see it in comparison of mill versus damage. Like with damage, I just have to eat through your health. I have to survive your damage. I have to survive your mitigation. But if I can deal, you know, Palpatine has 15 health. If I can deal 15 health to you, even though you can heal with Rise Again, you can put up shields, I still only have to deal 15 damage that stays on your card. It doesn't matter how I do it. It doesn't matter how much you remove. I just have to deal 15 damage. As opposed to with Mill, I have to go through 30 of your cards. I have to make sure I don't get killed. I have to make sure I mitigate the right dice. I have to make sure I reroll the right character dice with my cards. I have to make sure I'm doing a lot of things in a lot of different sequences in a very specific way. And if I do it wrong or I miss sequence something, that can be extremely punishing And I can very easily lose the game because I'm basically translating your team from whatever health you have printed on your cards to 30 health. 25 in the deck, 5 in your hand. So I have to go through 30 health points, or I have to go through 30 cards worth of health on top of whatever else you get on the field, whatever else you throw at me. I find Jabba to be fun. So in the initial Awakenings meta, I was running, it was Jabba Dooku for a long time. And then I did Jabba, Night Sister, and other things, and that didn't go well. And then uh, Spirit of Rebellion came out, and that was easy. It was Jabba, Unkar, because I could finally pay for Crime Lord, and I could easily Crime Lord somebody turn one or turn two. That was fun. And people never expected that because everyone was like, all right, we're going to go for four speed, super fast, hyper aggro damage. And then it's like, turn one, that guy over there, that girl over there, that character, they're dead. Wait, what? Yeah, I paid $9 and killed it. Or, you know, you use... (laughs) 
you use tricks to get <laughs> your crime lord die out. You don't pay for the card. You just pay for the die and you're like, oh no, that's super bad. On top of the fact that you could pressure with milling, you had fast hands, you could choke out their resources. Then when Empire at War came out, it was Thrawn Uncar, which was so good. So, so good. I love that deck. Very fun deck. And now I'm working with Jabba, Night Sister, Night Sister, and that is also a very, very powerful deck. You can win games. It is extremely difficult. It is not for the faint of heart, and you've got to practice a lot, but it can beat anything. I've played a lot of decks with good players. Mind you, this is not just playing, you know, new players. Like, you can beat Rainbow Fives. You can beat Sabine Ezra. You can beat your Qui-Gon Ray. You can beat, at PAX, I beat a, a Poe Ray. Like, I beat R2P2. So it can be done. Like I said, it is not easy and you have to know what you're doing, but this deck can absolutely go toe-to-toe with any other deck out there. Is it as consistent as those decks? No, but it can go toe-to-toe with them for sure. Speaking of Unkar, did you receive your Ivy Bell custom fan-made Unkar card? Uh, no, not yet. I'm uh, really excited to get my hands on that when it comes in. Yeah, there is one coming. And if you, the listener, would like one or any one of our other ones, we are currently doing a giveaway on our Facebook page. If you would like to see the five cards that were given away last month through our Patreon rewards program and are going to be given away through our giveaway, go ahead and check out our pin post where we will have a link to that contest as well as our pictures of the card in our picture album. Getting to um kind of main topic, Jabba is one of your favorite cards. This is well known on the Knights of Ren podcast. So I thought we would dive in and talk about him. What are your thoughts of Jabba the character? So I really didn't know much about or care much about him in the films because he was just so, so short. Like he wasn't in the film at all. It was like, here's this big fat evil character and you're just kind of forced to believe that he is big and evil and fat and has done terrible things just because he sends people to be eaten by the rancor that's just not good enough for me so a little history i'm a film major i'm an editor by trade i do professional media podcasting is one of those things i do so you know i've spent like good lord like 15 years in the industry And so my wife is also a writer. She does screenplays. So I don't take things at face value when it comes to like character design and storytelling. Like it's not interesting to me to see a character on a screen and they say, this is a bad person because they shot this guy in the face. And that's literally the only reason you should assume that this is a bad person. They're terrible. They're evil. They're villainous. And you should fear them. Like I want more. I want more backstory. I want more reasoning. I like, I want to know like, why is Jabba bad? Why is he this crime lord? Why do people fear him? And so after seeing Clone Wars with, you know, his relatives and the Hutt clan and reading the comics and reading the books, and I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, job is cool. This guy is bad news. This guy doesn't get his hands dirty. He sends everyone else to do it, which is funny because you could probably shoot him very easily. I mean, Leia literally strangled him to death, used zero weapons. She just used chains. So he's not like this powerhouse that can just get up off of his giant throne and kill you like strangle you with his bare hands he's not this massive walking nightmare he's just a really fat slug who buys people's loyalty correct me if i am wrong but in legends isn't this skin blaster resistant i think it is but i mean that doesn't mean he's gonna just like reach out and kill you like his flabby little arms can't like he can't like force choke you or like he doesn't even have a gun like shoot you back so he could just sit there and like he can just sit there and get shot and like, okay, cool. I don't really care. 
Well, he can just dick salacious crumb on you, I guess. Yeah, like that's not the threatening part of Jabba. It's the fact that people are so willing to take his money and do whatever he asks. That's scary because they'll literally do anything. Like he's like, okay, kill that guy over there. Yeah, sure. Okay, give me my money. He's like, okay, here you go. Uh, go get me some Taco Bell. Yeah, okay, sure. Why not? Why not? You know, give me, you know, pay me. Yeah, okay, here you go. Like he's just so freaking loaded with money that he can do literally whatever he wants and i i love it and that's something that never really came across in return of the jedi because he didn't really do that <laughs> he just kind of sat there and laughed <laughs> so uh, initially like his character design was kind of flat but it's grown over the years i think that's great because he is an interesting character it's funny how tatooine being so far out in the middle of nowhere has a lot of weird influence and ties to so many things we see happening in the movies and the books and the comics. And the huts are a part of that. Jabba's the big bad one. He's the hut to fear. It's just unique that there's so many different strings attached to all these different character arcs, story arcs, and plot points that happen that seem to constantly revolve around Tatooine and the hut clan and their crime sprees. I have to say that I am currently rewatching all the films on my way to The Last Jedi. Yep. And watching Return of the Jedi, he is a detour from the main story. His story arc outside of rescuing Han really has no effect on the main story. However, I am finding that during my rewatch, I actually do like him. Even though he seems like to be a two-dimensional character, he's colorful. And the technology behind him, I think, is very awe-inspiring and is very unique from that period in time. So I can see the appeal of him and the appeal of him in the fandom, even though he doesn't really do much in Return of the Jedi, although he has done quite a bit in the Legends timeline and the canon timeline. He's one of those characters that you go, meh, but I think you can see the appeal in him. It's one of those things where you do have to reach a little bit to kind of understand the grasp of his character design. But if you really think about it, if you go back to episode four, New Hope, if Han hadn't have worked with Jabba and dumped all that cargo, he wouldn't be desperate. He wouldn't be in that cantina. And he probably wouldn't have picked up Obi-Wan and Luke. You never would have seen Han. You would have never had his plot point. You would have never had Chewie. You would have never had Lando because all those things are interwoven. So, you know, you never would have gone to Cloud City. You never would have had Frozen Han. You would have never gone after Frozen Han, which then leads you to Jabba. And then you have to go to Tatooine and Luke and Leia. Like all these things happen because Han bailed on Jabba. Even if you never saw Jabba, just his existence helped push the Star Wars films in the direction that we've loved and enjoyed. Imagine a Han Solo who's wealthy, who's rich, who is not afraid of anyone. He's probably going to do whatever he wants with whoever he wants, and he just doesn't participate in the films. Like, he's not a rebel, he's not a villain, he's not a smuggler, he's just filthy, stinking rich, going around, shooting people, making money, buying drinks. Uh, who knows? But because of his interactions with Jabba, he is now desperate for cash to save his life, to save his ship. And so he takes on Obi-Wan and Luke, which then creates the whole storyline of going to the Death Star. And then, you know, Obi-Wan dies and then Luke wants to get his revenge and become a Jedi. And Han is basically drafted into the Rebel Alliance and so on and so forth. Jabba the Hutt is a primary source of all of these things happening. But they don't tell you that. They don't just allude to it and say, it's Jabba's fault. Everything is like, Jabba, Jabba, Jabba. It's like, they mention him once. And then if you go into the, the lore and you do your studies and your history, you kind of come to realize, okay, so he didn't 
technically do anything other than put a bounty on Han, but that bounty forced Han to do the things he did, which created episode four. The existence of Jabba is very necessary and very, very unique. Moving on to the cud of Jabba the Hutt, what do you think of the design of the cud? I think it's really good. For a utility character, I think it's fantastic. He's got 11 health. His point cost is 11 and 14. You've got one focus, one focus, two disrupt, two discard, one resource, and a blank. And after you activate Jabba, you may reroll a yellow die. So everything he does is just super efficient. Absolutely insanity for efficiency. You can get pretty much whatever you want if you're rolling two dice with Jabba, because if you don't roll, say you need a discard or a disrupt. If you roll it, great. If you don't roll it, you can re-roll using Jabba's ability. Or if you roll a focus and what you don't want, you can just focus into what you want. So he's very consistently giving you what you need. He's not a damage dealer, which is fine because that's not what his character does in the film. So it's very thematic, but he is consistent. He is very consistent and he gives you everything you want. If you need to choke cards, if you need to choke resources or create resources, he's the guy to do it. 11 health is a lot of health. That is that weird threshold of being just out of turn one bursting without spending a lot. Basically, all of your cards and resources to God roll into kill damage. And I'm, I'm talking about things like Sabine. You could hit 11 damage with a God roll, but it's really difficult. And you have to spend all your money and it's got to be 3, 3, plus 2, plus 2. And, you know, what is that? 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. You, you got to get damage on your other gun if you've played it on Sabine. So it's probably going to have to be a modified side because most guns you play have a two for one paid side. So you're looking at generally one third of your die to hit that either one damage or a plus two modified side without hitting a paid side. So it's very difficult to burst out Jabba turn one. Really, really difficult. So he's he's staying around on the board for a long time. Yellow villains have, well, yellow cards in general, but yellow villains have access to a lot of great things to keep them going. You've got fast hands, you've got personal shield. If you're running blue, you can put force illusion on him. He's just really, really tanky. And it's really neat because he's this massive, no pun intended, massive threat without a single damage side on his die. Like you sit down with a job of that and people are like, oh my gosh, I don't want to deal with this character. And like, he doesn't do anything. And that's the best part about Jabba is he literally just sits there and does non-damage annoyances. And it's a big enough threat that people are just not a fan of dealing with him. You mentioned your Jabba the Hutt Night Sister, Night Sister deck. That is a very intriguing deck from my point of view. I know that he has had previous partners in the past, but what is it about this deck that makes this deck such a interesting choice for you to go with when playing with Jabba? So I'm going to give props where they're due. I initially tried Jabba Sister Sister a long time ago, and it wasn't really that great. So I just kind of put it to the side. It never disappeared, but it never went much further than this is a fun deck, but not where it needed to be. And then... I heard about someone playing it, but I didn't know who it was. And I found out it was honestly sarcastic from the Hyperloops when we were at PAX. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. So he let me borrow his deck to play on day three at PAX. And it was really interesting because the night before we had sat down. So the Artificery team, the Knights of Ren team shared a Airbnb in Philadelphia. So very obviously we were playing games against each other and having long, long, long conversations about deck techs, card tech, 
basically anything we've talked about on the podcast, anything high level destiny, like we were spending hours just milling over all the ideas and all the things we could possibly do to gain advantage in our deck construction before we went to actually play the decks at PAX. And the the most interesting conversation we had was spawned by Elrathian. He was asking all of us, what did we think were some of the best cards in a specific color? And like, obviously, like the first thing I said was like friends in low places, like that card is insane. Being able to trade a one for one for zero. So you have to spot a yellow character, you look at your opponent's hand, and you get to pull out something that costs one or less. Let me pull up the card right now, because you got to read it to believe it. Like, it's just so, so good. It's basically a counter spell in destiny terms. It's hard to explain. So like, in, I'll, I'll explain it in magic. So when you play a card, like in magic, there's something called the stack. And say, for example, I were to cast a creature. I, I play this guy. I play Job the Hut. Woo! You could respond with a counter spell and say, okay, for two mana, three mana, I'm going to counter that play. So you've spent your resources, your mana to cast the Jabba card, but it never hits the field. So I've lost the resources I could have had. I've lost the character I could have had. And I lose the tempo from not actually having that character hit the field. And so that's essentially what counter spells do is they eat your tempo and your resources at a much lower cost to you than your opponent. So say, for example, I spent six mana or six resources to play Job at the Hut, and you played two or three resources to play the counter spell. So you've definitely come out ahead with your economy because you you spent three less resources and you basically you have three resources available to you that I don't. I no longer have a character. I no longer have a card. You still don't have a card, but still that's a big advantage to get rid of a big beefy creature. With Friends in Low Places, it's a zero-cost, neutral yellow card that says, spot a yellow character to look at an opponent's hand and discard an event from it that costs one or less. So two big things about this card that make it insanely powerful. First of all, you get to look at your opponent's hand. Even if you didn't get to get the event out of it, like zero to look at someone's hand is great because this allows you to play around what your opponent has. If you see that your opponent has no removal in their hand, you can do whatever you want because they can't mitigate your dice. You can go for some really ballsy plays and try and burst your opponent out turn one, because they don't have a card to stop you. They just have weapons, or they just have who knows what. But if you see your opponent's hand and you know for a fact they have no removal, can't stop me, you can just play your your heart's desire and do whatever you want. If you see your opponent has removal, you can actually remove it! That's the second part that makes Friends in Little Places so good. This is a preemptive counterspell, essentially. So I, I roll my dice out. And in Magic, say, for example, you would play Removal, like Doubt. I'm going to Doubt that die. All right, I respond with this counterspell. So you, Doubt doesn't happen. In that instance, you know, there'd be this play, counterplay kind of environment. So in Destiny, Friends in Little Places is basically a aggressive counterspell where you look at your opponent's hand and remove the removal before they can do anything about it. Now, it doesn't have to be removal. You can get rid of things like healing effects. Say somebody's got, you know, an indomitable. They want to put shields on Palpatine or you've got something like a field medic. They want to try and heal or like a logistics or, you know, it's it's whatever event that costs one or less. More often than not, you're going to get rid of removal because that's the most threatening thing in their hand. But if there is no removal, you can still get something out and your opponent has a four-card hand. It's very rare that you play Friends in Low Places and they don't have an event. But if that's the case, that's even better because then they're probably sitting on only equipment and they can't play at all. So your opponent can't do anything in terms of like 
changing their dice, can't do anything in terms of changing your dice, so on and so forth. So Friends in Low Places has a lot of flexibility, a lot of power, and it just gives you such a huge advantage because you know the cards in your hand, you know the cards in your opponent's hand, and now you can essentially you have the capacity to outplay your opponent if you know what their cards do and how they do them. Back to Jabba. Jabba is a yellow character. Friends in Low Places requires a yellow character to be spotted. Great pairing. Gives you access to one of the best yellow cards in the game, at least in the event suite. So then we talked about, well, what do we think about the best blue card? Hilariously, we couldn't figure out the best red card because we don't know what (laughs) what would necessarily be the best red card because there's a lot of good red cards for super specific situations but that's another topic for another day so the best blue card we all unanimously agreed on was four solution that card is like sustain on a stick being able to mill yourself for health is really good like really 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 good (laughs) like super good so that is a big reason why you will see Night Sister in there, on top of the fact that Night Sister is a very, very powerful card. Like, she is just such an amazing character. It's still underrated, which is really funny how that works because she just has so much going for her. Her ability is extremely powerful. The fact that you really can't use focus dice against her, it's terrible. Like, once you have this happen to you, so for example, if you don't know Night Sister, she has an ability that, as an action, you can deal one damage to her and reroll a die. You get to pick. If your opponent does something like, say they have a focus showing, and they have a blank showing, and they spend the focus to flip the blank to damage, you can use the Night Sister to ping the new die that is showing damage. Depending on the die, you're looking at a 1 in 6 chance or 2 in 6 chance of damage actually showing up. That is a really great trade for one damage like being able to deal one damage and reroll a die is so much better than discarding one card to reroll a die because you can mitigate that damage with shields that die that you hit could mean losing the game or winning the game that die could be your own die so you can use night sister on offense or defense if you have cards in your hand that you absolutely have to play but your dice aren't showing what you want you can ping your own night sister to aggressively reroll and get what you need while retaining options in your hand if your opponent has four dice showing damage but three of them are modified sides and one of them is base damage instead of using mitigation you could use a night sister to reroll that one base die and depending on the probability say say it's a one in six chance of rerolling back to base damage that's a great trade because those odds are really not in your opponent's favor, especially if they don't have cards available to reroll. Now, if you absolutely want to go for the guarantee, like, hey, they're going to kill Jabba or the Night Sister, you should probably use the removal that's guaranteed. But like later in the game, you're going to run out of removal. You're going to run out of options. You might not draw removal. You still have Night Sister online to use that effect, whether she's readied, whether she's exhausted, doesn't matter what orientation. If she's upside down and backwards, as long as she still has health, you can use her effect to ping herself, re-roll a die of your choice. That has won me a lot of games because of Night Sister. So back to the color, color swatch. So you run Jabba for the yellow, Night Sister for the blue. You have four solution. It's a one cost neutral blue upgrade ability that says before attached character takes damage, you may discard cards from the top of your deck equal to the damage to block it, then discard this upgrade from play. You want to use this wisely and being able to use four solution at the right place at the right time will definitely prove the difference between a great player and a decent player. If you're looking at five damage coming at you, 
you have to assess how do I want to take this? So say you've got three dice, one die is showing one damage, one die is showing two damage, and one die is showing plus two modified damage. You've got three dice, five damage potentially, just by the existence of this card on, for example, Jabba, because people usually go after Jabba, you have the ability to force your opponent to make a bad decision. And that's really important when playing Destiny is making your opponent do bad things consistently. In this example, you have one die showing one damage, one die showing two damage, and one die showing plus two modified damage. Your opponent now has to choose, do I add the modified damage to the one or to the two? Because the Force Illusion cannot block all five damage, it can just block a single packet. So your opponent can either deal one plus two or two plus two. If your opponent decides, I'm going to swing four damage as one packet and one damage as the other packet, sure, you'll mail four cards. I will happily not take four damage on Java and just take one damage, especially if you've got things like Hunkered Down. Man, I'll lose a shield and four cards. Easy. So really what you want to do is split it two and three. You want to modify the one damage. So you're dealing three damage as one packet and two damage as the other packet. So your opponent has to maximize their damage and their discard. They'll probably, most likely mill themselves three cards and take two damage on Jabba. And one damage can be the difference in winning or losing a game. I beat a five die rainbow fives by one damage. Never ever think, oh, one damage, no big deal. One damage can mean victory or defeat. So right there, you force your opponent to make a decision. And if they make the wrong decision, you've got an advantage because Jabba's sister sister runs cheat. So throwing things into your graveyard is not bad. Of course, you would like access to some of those cards, but you really would rather lose four cards over four damage. That is a fair trade. Excellent trade, in fact, just because of the fact that like keeping your characters alive longer means a better chance of winning the game. Once again, we keep rabbit trailing, but we go back to your question, why do you do Jabba Sister Sister? We had the conversation and believe that Force Illusion is the best blue neutral card in the game, and Friends in Low Places is the best yellow neutral card in the game. And guess what? Jabba Sister Sister can run both of those cards in a playset. So you have access to two of the best cards in the game with two copies of each. So you have sustainability for your characters through Force Illusion, and you have a preemptive counter-strike or counter-spell, whatever you want to call it. In my head, it's a it's a preemptive counter-spell using Friends in Low Places. And if I get a card out of their hand, I'm milling them, which is what I want. If I don't get a card out of their hand, I know what they have, so I can play around what they've got. Like, having hand knowledge is just so critically important. It is definitely an interesting deck for sure. And Jabba is exactly what you said. He's one of those cards that has a lot of layers to him. Why do you think he is not making a current dent in the meta? Do you think that his card has a high curve? Or do you just think that he doesn't have the right deck for him right now? It's a really high curve. It's a very painful curve that without extensive knowledge of your game, extensive knowledge of the game, extensive knowledge of card rulings, and extensive knowledge of individual matchups, it's incredibly difficult to pilot this deck. It does take a lot of research. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, this is a fun, super fun deck to play in casuals. Super, super, super fun. You, you may win, you may not, but it's, it's hyper fun. Take it to your casual night. Have a blast. But if you want to go toe-to-toe with these meta decks, R2-P2, Rainbow Five, Sabine Ezra, you have to know everything in that deck. Your deck and your opponent's deck. You have to know every card you've got in your deck. 
You have to know where those cards are. Not like cheating, but I mean, like you need to know what cards are in your hand. You need to know what cards are in your graveyard. You need to know what cards you could potentially draw into. You have to understand the probability of drawing into them at the turn you need them. You have to understand what your opponent is potentially playing in their deck, what they could potentially have in their hand, how you need to shut some of those things out, when you need to shut some of those things out. You know, for example, there's points in games where you're looking at Sabine Ezra and they have no resources, but they have a resource die showing and you have a disrupt side showing. You can't claim because if you claim, they are going to make a dollar and the next turn they're going to have three dollars and they're going to play Never Tell Me the Odds and they're going to kill you. That is not something everyone knows. That's not every something everyone's aware because you're looking at their table going, there's no money. They don't have any money. They can't shoot me. They can't do anything. I'm going to claim. But if you claim, you lose because they're going to just, just wreck your face because they have Infamous out. They're going to roll out Sabine. They're going to Infamous never tell me the odds. And you know how that goes. You're looking at six, nine, 12, you know, who knows how much damage they have based on the guns on Sabine for three resources that you could have not had to deal with if you had have been patient and forced them to claim. That's just one of those considerations. If they don't have the card in their hand, it's still a risk. You have to assume they have the card in their hand because if they're sitting on that resource and they're not trying to reroll for damage, they've probably got the card in their hand. And if they're bluffing, that's still fine. That's not a risk. Like it's not a manageable risk you want to take. But without knowing that, you would just assume there's like one or two cards in their hand, there's no money on the table, I'm fine. But you have to look at their board, you have to look at their graveyard, you have to look at their eyes. Sometimes a player will tell you what they're trying to do with their eyes. You know, people say the eyes are the windows to the soul, you can try and read them. If you play a lot of poker, that is a very valuable skill. People tell you a lot of things with their body language. Utilizing that with Jabba can be extremely advantageous. So yes, it's a very high skill cap deck. It requires a lot of understanding of when to use a Night Sister, where to use a Night Sister, what the probabilities are on the dice you're pinging. Like, are your odds heavily in your favor to get rid of something? Like, for example, you're looking at your opponent playing Qui-Gon Kanan, and they've got two damage on Qui-Gon showing, two sticks on Qui-Gon die, and a plus three modified side on the ancient lightsaber and Jabba only has five health left. Well, you should probably ping the ancient lightsaber because if it hits damage, it's only going to hit you for one. And if it hits anything else, then it's just going to not be a big deal. I mean, that's another thing you can do with something like doubt. You have to understand the mathematical probability of which target do I doubt? What is going to be the outcome? Like for example, once again, Ancient Lightsaber has one stick, one stick, plus three modified sticks, one shield, one resource, one blank. If you doubt that card, you have a four and six chance of hitting a blank, essentially, in, in terms of damage. And one damage is much better to absorb than plus three modified. Huge, huge swing. Because now you're going from potentially five damage from Qui-Gon and the Ancient Lightsaber to three damage from Qui-Gon and the Ancient Lightsaber. Two damage is a pretty big swing for zero resources. I would happily pay zero resources for a card that says take two less damage this turn or, you know, remove a, a die that has two damage showing like that's insanity. That's just absolute economy, economical insanity to say, all right, I'll take it. That's something you have to understand, like with cards, with Night Sister, with pings, with rerolls and things like that. Like, what is the value out of playing this card? What is the value out of using this ability? It takes experience and it takes 
games where you make mistakes. Like I've lost a lot of games, just like I've won a lot of games. And every game I've lost, I've learned, oh, hey, that's probably a bad target for Night Sister. Oh, hey, that's probably a bad target for Doubt. Oh, hey, I probably should have rerolled my die instead of their die and so on and so forth. You're learning as you play what is an efficient play, what is not an efficient play, what works and what doesn't. And that helps grow your skill set and your mindset to play Destiny as a better player. Wrapping up the topic of Jabba, what do you think, if anything, needs to come to the game to help make Jabba more visible in the meta? That is an excellent question. As a control player, I would love to see more removal. I would love to see more cheap upgrades that are focused on discard and disrupt and focus. If there was some kind of upgrade... Like, we you know, we joke about, you know, what if Jabba's chain or Jabba's whip was like an upgrade and all it did was like discard and disrupt. It costs like one resource and it was like one discard, one discard, one disrupt, one disrupt, blank, blank. That would be fun. That would make Jabba really nasty because, you know, you have access to so much economic choke that it would be pretty disgusting. I don't know if FFG will ever allow mill decks to be rampantly run. I think, especially after interviewing Jeremy and Lucas, they've said people would say that a mill deck is kind of a negative play experience. Most people don't want to lose to a mill deck. They want to lose by damage and dice rolls and, you know, high octane, heavy, fast paced, guns shooting, stick stabbing, stuff like that. I don't know. I'm not sure if anything will push Jabba into the limelight outside of a good player winning an event with Jabba and people would go, oh, wow, super cool. I want to try that. Who knows? There was a Jabba who topped at Worlds. That was James, and shout out to him. He's a very powerful character in the right hands, and I don't think there's any reason he can't win a regional, he can't win a galactic qualifier. A lot of things have to go right, and the player has to know what they're doing, but it is not impossible. And I would love to see Jabba at top tables and Jabba take it out. The best thing that could happen would be more removal for like neutral gray and yellow stuff. If there's any kind of cheap removal, Jabba's absolutely going to love it because being able to get rid of your dice, being able to get rid of your cards and your resources is exactly what he wants while keeping his resources flush. Anything that makes more money efficiently, anything that gets rid of cards or dice efficiently would push Jabba into a very, very potent place. We might see that, we might not. I'm not entirely sure. It is now time to wrap this episode up. Thank you, Sugi, for coming on and talking about some fascinating topics and discussions. It was so nice having you on talking about so many stimulating and interesting topics. Oh, you're, you're very welcome. I'm glad we talked about Jabba. He's, he's so good. He's so much fun. Anyone who listens to this, I would hope you would try him. Like, if he's not your thing, I totally understand. You don't have to play him because I said anything about it. I think he's a fantastic card, especially in casuals. He's just really, really raunchy. Like, to sit down with the job of the hut, rolling dice, and just making your opponent go, ugh, like, that, that just feels so good. Because while your opponent is struggling to deal damage, you're like, uh, get rid of two cards. Uh, get rid of those resources. Uh, I'm going to hit friends in low places, get rid of this card out of your hand. We're going to electroshock that die right there. And, like, you don't really do anything, but your opponent doesn't really do anything, and that's exactly what you want. Like, you want nothing to happen, and you win. 
by doing nothing. And it's really funny because you'll win a game and someone's like, what happened? You're like, nothing happened. And that just doesn't make sense. And, you know, you smile and you laugh, you shake your opponent's hand and they challenge you to a run back and you, you do it again. And it's just super great. You make friends and you have a great time with a, this big, fat, giant slug guy <laughs> taking all your stuff. <laughs> so it sounds like whenever you win with Java, you always walk away with an evil laugh. For our listeners, what does that evil laugh sound like? <laughs> uh, it sounds something like this, where you go, <laughs> or or you give them the the film, the ho 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 ho, which you know everyone goes, oh my gosh, someone's playing a job. <laughs> It, it was coming. I had to put that in there. But uh, before we let you go, if people would like to contact you, where can they find you? So you can find us at the Knights of Ren podcast. We are on Facebook at Knights of Ren podcast. On Twitter and Instagram, it's KOR podcast. You can find us on Discord. Just look up Knights of Ren. We've got man, YouTube pretty much everything like it's Knights of Ren or KOR podcast where all across the board we're you know on BGG forums FFG forums Reddit got Facebook pages discords we have an email Knights of Ren podcast at gmail.com if you want to contact us you know feel free we are here to be a resource to the community we are not anything different than anyone else we're people who play the game we're people who want to talk about the game grow the game and just be readily available if you have questions if you have ideas you know people send us deck ideas all the time ruling questions. Sometimes we'll just talk about Oreos, Jack in the Box, like things that have nothing to do with Destiny or Star Wars. Like we're just here to help. That's the entire point and existence of Knights of Ren is to be a resource to the community to help grow the game and give you, you know, quality information that comes from people who are, you know, experienced in card games, experienced in, you know, winning tournaments and can give, you know, healthy and valuable advice. That concludes this episode of Ivy Bell. Thank you for tuning in, and we will catch you all next time. This has been Ivy Bell, a Star Wars Destiny podcast. I have been your host, Jedi Geek Bill. If you would like to contact me, please send me an email at ivybelldestiny at gmail.com. And as always, may the force be with you. Bell is an independent podcast, not associated with Lucasfilm, Disney, Fantasy Flight Games, or any other organization. All copyrights for Star Wars, Star Wars Destiny, and all other properties belong to the proper copyright holders.